Let's turn on the green lights on. Right. Good morning, everyone. It is really good to be with you all this morning. It's always, I think, fun to come down to Parkersburg to uh, to see you all and to kind of hear the things that are going on. Um, I, I, as I was writing things, I was prepared to uh, to think through um, what it'd be like to to preach to a lot of faces that I had never seen before. But I didn't realize that about two thirds of the room would be people I had never seen before. So it's truly a blessing to see that God is moving moving among the people of Parkersburg and moving in this place. Uh, for those of you who don't know me super well, my name is Derek and I pastor the church, the Anglican church plant in Charleston, West Virginia called Hope Church. Um, God called my family and I back to West Virginia uh, to be a part of the work that he's doing in this state to plant churches in West Virginia. And praise God, we've planted Hope Church in Charleston. We're moving out, uh, though, from Charleston and planting uh, weekly services at the, the first Sunday of next month in Beckley, West Virginia, Mission Hope Beckley, which is absolutely amazing to see what God is doing. He's been gracious to us in the work that we've been doing, but it really started here in Parkersburg uh, through the faithfulness of Jim and Becky Sally when they stepped out of their, their comfortable life in Virginia to come to West Virginia to plant Redeemer in Parkersburg. Um, Jim, if you, could, if you could put on your earmuffs, I'm going to say some nice things about you. I don't want you to get a big, he- big head. Yeah, do it. If you all uh, don't know it already, I absolutely love and adore your pastor. He's become a, a dear friend to me and is a, a force of stability in my life. Uh, especially when I am at uh, Anglican gatherings and begin to get a little bit of young man's disease, get riled up and start yelling about stuff. Uh, Jim is the guy that, that is uh, willing to uh, say, hey, maybe it's time to uh, calm down a little bit. He's also a guy that I know would go to bat for me in a heartbeat, no matter the issue, no matter whether I'm right or wrong. He exemplifies in my mind what faithful obedience to God looks like in a tangible way. I vividly remember looking at the at the church map of the ACNA back in the uh, back in 2014 or 2015 and thinking, "Holy cow, there's an Anglican church in Parkersburg. How awesome is that?" We had been attending the Anglican church that we came into in Colorado for for uh, only probably a few months at that point and it was in the midst of of, of joining, I think, for probably the first time in our lives, a healthy church, that we began to, to feel a strong sense of frustration with our experience growing up in West Virginia. I believe that this sense of, of frustration with, with just a general lack of good things happening in our state is, is what caused is most of, most of the, the kids that we graduate out of Young Life in Charleston uh, to end up moving away from the state eventually. It's hard to see, I believe, how beautiful something is when we are close to it. Think about it. If you, if you put your nose right up to the, the painting, the Mona Lisa, if you put your nose right up to it, your eyes would have to, to cross to see anything, right? You might be able to tell what colors are involved in the painting, but it'd be so blurry you really wouldn't be able to tell anything that's going on there. It would not have the same haunting effect it has when you look at it from the proper perspective, proper distance. So it took distance for my wife and I to distance of moving to Colorado to really appreciate the beauty of West Virginia. But I'm not sure if coming back to West Virginia 
to plant an Anglican church in particular would have ever felt like an option to us if, we ha- if it hadn't been for, for Jim plugging away here already in Parkersburg. I started visiting Redeemer shortly after I found out it existed, uh, anytime we were in town, and the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> uh, there's a much longer story uh, than we have time for this morning, but if you would like to hear more of that, or if you're interested in that longer story and, and hearing just what God has done in our lives and what he, uh, we believe that he's doing in the state of West Virginia, I would encourage you to, to either uh, come over to Jim's after church or uh, my parents live in town, so I'm here all the time anyway. So feel free to reach out. We can grab coffee or lunch anytime, and uh, I can tell, tell you more of that story. It really, again, is, is incredibly wonderful to be with you guys this morning, uh, here to share from God's Word. I think uh, Jim only invites me to come preach at Redeemer because he knows I'm not as good a preacher as he is, so it makes him look good. <laughs> but I wish, I wish you could go back with me and sit in on my preaching classes in seminary and just see how far I've come. God, I believe firmly in my heart that God does not, does not call the equipped. He does not call people who are, are capable already, but He equips those He calls. So if you hear anything that sounds good this morning, I assure you it's from the Lord. It is not from the mouth of Derek Roberts. There's nothing coming good from my mouth. So either he shows up, or the sermon will be terrible, or maybe the sermon will be terrible and he'll still show up. Praise God. I don't know how he works necessarily. I don't completely understand him, but I know that as we follow him, he picks up for the tremendous amount of slack in our lives. So if you're feeling like me and you're feeling unworthy or useless this morning or just plain worn out, this might be the perfect place. I mean, it definitely is the perfect place for, for you to be this morning, and, it's, and it really is the perfect place for God to begin to use you as well. That really is one of, of my favorite aspects of the church calendar in particular. We have this whole season of ordinary time. It's just over a third of the way through, and, and it is almost more than half of the church year. It's by far the longest season in the church calendar, which I've always found interesting, because I remember when I first started out attending an Anglican church and was going through my first season of the church calendar, I remember thinking about how boring ordinary time is. There's nothing happening, nothing, no celebrations happening. I couldn't wait. For something to change, for Advent to come, so we could change the colors from green. It's so long of green. And I kind of still feel that way, right? But I think it's, it's by design. I believe we are given in the gift through the calendar of these moments uh, of intentional contrast that come through the calendar that allow us to experience seasons of fasting and seasons of feasting. There's a time for everything. The contrast is valuable, but it still doesn't directly speak to this notion of ordinary time. Well, I think it's inherent. Ordinary time is inherent in the way we live our lives. Most of the moments that we live are between the extremes of first cries and last breaths, of extreme sorrow and extreme joy. We live every day within the ordinary, the mere ordinary moments of our lives, rather than in extraordinary moments. I believe that God is trying to tell us this morning that we have an example of Christ in the ordinary moments. Our passage today finds Jesus in the middle of an ordinary moment in His life. An ordinary Sabbath meal. He would have done this every week. And we see through this passage the way that Jesus approaches these rather ordinary moments. We see that the way He approaches them is anything but ordinary. 
Not only does this season give us an example in Christ Jesus, but it also elevates the potential for the ordinary moments in our lives. It tells us that in every moment, we have the opportunity to align ourselves with Christ's life and grow in holiness. This is a wonderful gift we've been given, church. Before we continue with our sermon this morning, let's just take a couple moments to pray. Father God, we again invite you here. Lord, you are the object of our worship, Lord, and everything that we do when we are gathered together is worship, Lord. Pray we would align our lives with Christ's life, Lord, that in our ordinary moments we would see them as opportunities for worship, for for growing in holiness, Lord. We pray that what we do in here would be felt in the streets of Parkersburg, West Virginia, Lord. Lord, and we pray that if by some chance Redeemer Parkersburg ceased to exist, Lord, that the city would weep. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Guide our hearts in truth, Lord. Guide my mouth this morning that I would not speak a single word that's not from you. We love you and we pray all these things in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to go back to this picture of the Mona Lisa again. Uh, we probably all can, can recall that image in our minds. And I just want to look at, at how perspective impacts our interpretation of a situation. So I think this is, is precisely at the core of what Jesus is trying to, to, to show the characters of our passage today. See, over the course of a couple thousand years, the Jews had learned to look at God in, in a particular way through a particular lens. And this is basically the way that it works anytime Jesus teaches about the kingdom, right? It's basically like his teaching is the proper lens with which, through which to understand the whole of Scripture. Think about it this way. What would you really understand about the cosmos, the, all of the stuff that's out there in the universe? What would you, would you really understand about all of that stuff by just looking up at the night sky? You might get something of the cosmology of the song Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, but you really wouldn't understand anything, right? It's not until you get the proper lens through which to look that you can begin to see the fact that there are planets and universes and whole other worlds that are out there. The same is true, though, when things get really small, right? Something you should... Or maybe, I don't know if this is an illustration or a confession, something you should know about me and something that Jim has seen in full force is that I really like beer. Maybe confession? I don't know. I like looking at it, I like smelling it, I like tasting it, I like talking about it, I even like judging it. And more recently, I've even started making it. So I've gotten to know the science behind brewing and fermentation. Fermentation for for thousands of years seemed like magic to people. For thousands of years, smashing up grapes or crushing grain and and putting water on it and letting it sit for a little while, if you did that, it turned into something that when you drank it, it made you happy. It's magic or a miracle or whatever else you want to call it, but, but people made it and they drank it and they were joyful and they rejoiced with The microscope, though, the proper lens through which to look at what's going on, you find that there are these microscopic organisms called yeast 
that live on pretty much every surface. And part of their metabolic process is to consume sugar and to poop out carbon dioxide and alcohol. It's amazing. I don't know about you, but I find that no less of a miracle that microscopic bugs live everywhere and eat sugar and poop out happy juice. This is a miracle. In both of these cases, though, it it requires proper perspective in order to understand the full picture. We have to pull our faces away from the surface of the Mona Lisa in order to appreciate the genius of da Vinci. This is exactly the question, the reason Jesus was asking the question that he asked at the beginning of chapter 14 in Luke's Gospel. He asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? The beginning. So he was doing a very ordinary thing, right? In having a Sabbath meal. It wasn't an uncommon event. It was a simple, ordinary moment in the life of Christ, yet he took the opportunity to shift their perspective. He asked this question to a group of leaders of the nation of Israel, very experts in the law, Pharisees, people who are most likely to understand the way that God operates with his people. Yet the text says when he asked the question, they remained silent. Jesus healed the man that he was referencing and he sent him away and it challenged them. But what he was doing is he zoomed out and he drew the connection that, they, that these people would be more willing to pull an ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath than to allow the restoration of the full person. He then proceeds to tell them a parable about a wedding feast that resulted in an indictment on the whole party of people who were there. And he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. If things weren't already tense in the room after two pure indictments against the people who were sitting in there, he begins to tell a parable of a man who, to the man who invited them. And he said, when you give a dinner banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will, though, be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So it's into this scene. Jesus offending everyone in the room. But we pick up our passage today. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Luke chapter 14, and we'll pick up in verse 15. It says, When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. They obviously understood what he was talking about, right? The utter inclusivity of the kingdom of God. And it offended them. The air at this point was completely sucked out of the room. It was tense. It was a tense moment. Everyone is tense. And someone who we only know by the descriptive characteristics that he was reclining with Jesus at the table seeks to diffuse the situation, I think. He, goes, he does this by appealing to something that he thought everyone could agree on, right? Everyone is blessed who eats bread in the kingdom of God. It's non-controversial, right? It's true. Perhaps he was trying to save Jesus from himself, help him dig himself out of a hole. Jim does this for me sometimes. (laughs) We get around other fancy Anglicans, start getting fired up. He'll say something like, calm down, youngin. 
And I usually heed his advice because I'm usually wrong. But Jesus, knowing here that he's in the right, he launches into yet another parable, indicting them. So let's go ahead and, and read the first part of it, picking up in verse 16. It says, But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for those bank." At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, If I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them, please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Okay, to completely understand what we're seeing in this passage, what's going on here, we have to understand how a party invites went out in the first century. It was customary to send out basically a save the date, to say, hey, we're having this party, here's the date, save the time. And, and they would, at that point, RSVP for the party and say, yes or no, I'm coming. So all of the people we find in our passage today have already said that they're coming to the banquet. Yet as the date gets closer, we see here, when he sends out a more formal invitation, a final invitation to the party. They begin making excuses. Their stuff and their loves begins to interfere with their attendance at the party. We also know that the the master of this banquet is extremely wealthy. It's a great party, it says. He invited many people. There aren't many of us who probably ever experienced a spread like what was on offer at this party. Choice delicacies of all varieties and choice wine, all on offer to those who simply accept the invitation of the Master. It's difficult not to see the illusions here of God's kingdom, right? God's people knew that when God threw a banquet, it's all through the Psalms we see, and through Isaiah as well, that when, when God throws a banquet, He uses the choice cuts of meat, and the, only the finest wine. This would have been, I'm talking Michelin star quality food and the best wines in the world. It's a party that I want to go to. Heck, I've waited almost five years for an invitation to go eat meat off Jim's grill. I always see it on Facebook and my mouth begins to water. I love food. So this image of a heavenly banquet holds great appeal to me. This view of the best party, the best party is certainly the view that the beloved disciple, St. John, received from his teaching, uh, being under Jesus. We see him, as he wrote of the kingdom of God in the book of Revelation, as being a wedding banquet, right? The offer to enter the kingdom of God is to be a part of the king's family and to receive all the benefits commensurate with it. This is also the reason that the, the response of the Master in this passage is so controversial. Into this sort of a party, where the benefits are difficult to even imagine the greatness of them. The guests have all made excuses, favoring their possessions over the party. So Jesus has the master offer this response. Let's keep reading in verse 21. It says, So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. The servant said, 
Sir, what you have commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Fill the house. That's the invitation. Fill the house. When all the Jews who were poor and crippled and lame and broken people were invited, and the house still had room, he said, Go out to the hedges and the highways and bring them in. Fill the house. Seems like the master in the story is less con- concerned with the character and the quality of the people he's bringing in than he is with the fact that the house is full. This leads to all sorts of questions as we begin to make connections between this feast in this parable and the eschatological feast, the ultimate feast, the wedding banquet of the Lamb, which will be forever. It is our destiny as believers. Because the poor and the broken in this life don't seem to be afterthoughts to God. It doesn't seem that that God, after He already gets through with all of the respectable people, those who are put together, only then will He bring in the poor and the broken and the outcasts. No, that doesn't seem to be the way that God works. It seems that in this direct context, Jesus isn't telling us necessarily exactly how the kingdom works, but he's challenging our worldly social orders of the people of God. How is God challenging our social orders this morning? See, there's something going on in this passage that I think fundamentally alters the way that we operate in terms of social order. First and foundationally, we must understand that we ourselves are the poor, the blind, and the broken in the story. We are those who were separated from fully worshiping God by our sin and by our brokenness. We all, I think, understand this on some level within ourselves, sometimes more than others, but we absolutely have to internalize this truth before we can move any further in understanding this passage. We are the saved ones. We are the invited ones. A lot of times after we've been in church for a while and we've cleaned up some of the more grievous or more obvious sins in our lives, we begin to operate with the mentality that we are somehow above the broken people of this world. This is what the religious elite were doing in Jesus' day though. This is what they were doing at this very party. Just to be associated with sinful broken people was to somehow be lesser. This is why Jesus Himself, after hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, gets the title, glutton and drunkard. What kind of reputation are we getting from the people that we spend time with? Now please don't hear me saying that we should follow our friends into their sin. Please do not hear that this morning. But we simply must be close enough to those who don't know Jesus, for us to rub off on them. We have to be. The simple fact is, though, that judgment is real. That hell is real. That some people are going to spend eternity separated from God. Now, I don't know what hell looks like exactly, but if heaven's a banquet with all the choicest food and the choicest drink, hell is whatever the opposite of that would be. Cleaning ourselves up and becoming respectable Christians will not save us. 
Having a good reputation will not save us. Paying our tithes will not save us. Doing ministry will not save us. The blood of Jesus, friends, is the only thing that will save us. The grace of God, in the while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, is the only thing that can save us. Let us put all of our trust, all of our hope, all of our comfort in Christ alone, crucified, risen, reigning on the throne as the Lamb who was slain, the perfect sacrifice for our sin, that we might, with Him, again, one day rise and reign. Well, I think the the main purpose of this passage is to rearrange our values and who we spend our time with in this world. It's difficult not to see this connection, though, right? With the, the forever banquet feast, where we will feast together with all of the saints in eternal Sabbath rest. This is truth, friends. The parallels are too obvious to ignore, I think, in this aspect. I think it means that we, that we can't simply hang out with sinners and feast in this life. We can't just simply go to parties and hang out with sinners, well, as great as that is. I think it means that we must share with them the invitation to the banquet. We have to share the gospel with those who we come in contact with. Our great hope is that the Master has invited us in, us broken people, into the banquet and tenderly cared for our wounds. And now, friends, He's sending us out into the world to bring good news of hope to others. We get the opportunity to participate in God's plan of redemption of the whole world. And it's not a hard sell. We're inviting them to a party. Oh, that our worship would reflect. Oh, that our worship would reflect this party well enough. That we can get a taste of what is to come. That we can first taste what is to come. And that we would love it so much that we can't help invite other people into it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.